everyone, and welcome back to another episode on the Behind the Stigma podcast. I'm your host, Ciara Minova, and in this week's episode, we are discussing mindful productivity and the creative process. Our guest speaker today, who I'm delighted to introduce, is Anne-Laure Lecomte. Anne-Laure is an educator, writer, and researcher. She's the founder of Nest Labs, a learning community that provides content, coaching, and courses to help creators put their minds at work. She writes about mindful productivity, creativity, learning, and so much more. She's also a cognitive neuroscientist in training, pursuing a PhD at King's College London, where she investigates how different people's brains learn differently. I'm truly excited to learn from her today. And Laura, welcome. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited. You've had quite an exciting journey from Google to a couple of startups to finding Nest Labs and to soon writing your very own book. I feel like you've become this figure for many for sharing practical tips and tools and more importantly, how to be productive and creative in your work. So to kick us off, I'd love to know how did this journey of yours begin? How did you go from Google to Nest Labs? Yeah, I don't know if I've I've become a a figure, but I've (laughs) just been a very public student. So I'm just learning in public and sharing what I discover uh, along the way. In terms of how this journey started, I left my job at Google a few years ago, even though it was going really great there. I was having lots of fun working on interesting products and my team was really amazing. But I felt like I could see the exact steps that I had to take in order to be successful on this path. And I somehow lost all interest in it once I knew exactly what I had to do and what the journey looked like. So I left and I decided to work on a startup, which didn't work out because, and now it feels very naive when I look back, but I really thought that there was a playbook, a recipe that you could apply to have a successful startup, which obviously is not the case because we wouldn't have such a high rate of failures in the startup (laughs) world if there was a magic recipe you can apply. But the recipe I had read about, the one that places like Y Combinator and a lot of Silicon Valley thought leaders were sharing at the time was that you absolutely needed to find a co-founder. So I did that, found a co-founder, started building the company, and then realized that we were not aligned at all with my co-founder, that we were not in it for the same reasons, didn't have the same vision for the company. So we, and that's that's part of the lingo you use in startups, but we broke up, basically. It's, (laughs) It's really funny how you use the same words, basically, for dating and for and for co-founders relationships. And um, after that, I tried another startup this time with a co-founder where we were really aligned, uh, but we didn't find product market fit. So we also folded that one. And I found myself feeling completely lost because up to this point, I had just studied really hard in school. Mm. I got this job at Google. I followed the playbooks for, for building a successful startup. And and that didn't work out. I, I didn't know my next steps. So I decided to go back to the drawing board and ask myself, what is something that I've always loved, regardless of what like the, the success that I would get out of it, or regardless of the money I could make out of it? What, what is something I would be very excited to wake up every morning and learn about? And for me, that has always been the brain and the mind, how it works 
why we think the way we think and feel the way we feel. So I went back to school to study neuroscience at King's College London, and I did a master's degree there. And I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I felt like I found something that I was I was going to really enjoy learning about, but it was also really hard. So in order to learn better, I decided to start writing about what I was studying. And I started a little newsletter where every week I would write a few articles uh, about stuff that I was learning about in university, but trying to make it as applicable as possible for people to really understand, not hiding behind complicated jargon, really trying to make it simple and usable. That was the beginning of Nest Labs. I didn't know it at the time, but that newsletter turned into a business. I had people reaching out, asking if they could sponsor it. And then I created a community. So that's basically how I went from working at Google to now running Nest Labs. Absolutely incredible. I'm curious to know, did you always have a clear vision of wanting to be a writer from the get-go or is it more slowly dawning on you? I always loved writing. As a kid, I was writing novels and poems. Really? And, uh, yeah. And we, we actually had like a, it was a really big fight with my parents to force me kind of, um, in France, uh, when you're 15, I think you need to choose if you're going to go in the um, kind of like more like a literature branch or economics or science for, um, your, it's called baccalaureate. It's like your SAT for your, the US yeah. or your A-levels for the UK. And I really wanted to do the literature one. That's where you study <laughs> philosophy, you you write essays, you study history, etc. And my parents were convinced that I would basically uh, be jobless if I did that. And that <laughs> the only way to succeed was to either do economics or science. So I actually, which is really f- interesting for me that I then on my own, went back to studying neuroscience much later. But at that age, when I was 15, I was like, no, actually, I want to, I want to read and write and uh, do philosophy and poetry and theater, etc. So I always loved it, but I never, and I think uh, partly because of that experience, I never saw it as something where that I could do as a job. Mm. So I always kept writing as this more like hobby that I had on the side. And and even when I started the newsletter, I didn't really think of it as a business. Uh, it was for me this fun project just to learn in public and to refine my thinking when it came to the stuff that I was studying. So the writing part has always been something I loved, but the becoming a writer and for that to be the way I earn an income was a very progressive thing. And and even today, to be honest, sometimes I pinch myself when I wake up in the morning. I'm like, oh my God, I'm actually, you know, it's the weird things, but like at the end of the month when I'm paying my rent, I'm like, oh, I'm paying my rent with money I made by writing on the internet. How lucky is this? And I feel incredibly fortunate that I ended up finding this path because I had no idea it even existed or it was a possibility. It's such a beautiful journey and hopefully both your parents and you are happy. (laughs) (laughs) So something that I've realized during my creative process or even before starting my own creative process is some mental barriers that I've kind of ingrained within myself, which have actually stopped me from even starting my own process in the first place. And one of those things was time anxiety, the belief that we are too late. It's 
too late to become a researcher. It's too late to learn a new instrument. It's too late to become a writer, etc. And those barriers, I feel, sometimes can hold us back from even creating in the first place. I would love to know when you had first started Nest Labs, did you ever have such barriers or self-doubts that stopped you from growing Nest Labs, for example, or just moving towards that goal? And it's totally fine if you did not. But if you did, um, how did you overcome them? I think I can give you a better example in my case, because for Nest Labs, I basically wasn't really sure where I was going or trying to achieve anything. I didn't feel any of that kind of pressure. But um, when I was much younger, when I was in my early 20s, I was working at Google and I was on the YouTube team. And at the time, I really wanted to start a YouTube channel except that I organized with Google a YouTube conference. And so I got to meet a lot of the YouTube creators at the time. And you would think that this would have, this, this should have inspired me to get started, but it had mm -hmm. the complete opposite effect. I just felt like I was too old. It's just funny. I was maybe 22, something like this. And, um, oh my God. and they were all maybe 17 or you know, even younger sometimes or 18. And I felt like I just, I missed the boat basically. That was 10 years ago. And I was like, no, wow. I missed the YouTube boat. So I didn't start a YouTube channel at the time. And I only started my YouTube channel a few years ago, fairly recently after I started Nest Labs. But because I think Nest Labs in a way gave me that confidence to start something mm later and not thinking about the overall kind of like time of it and just basically just thinking about is it the right time for me to do this versus is this the right time in the grand scheme of things and if I have this creative curiosity if I'm interested in trying something in explore a space it doesn't really matter if that's the yeah. thing that is on trend right now that you're supposed to do or if it has a huge potential to grow because the goal is to just learn, learn about a craft, but also learn about yourself. And that's how I'm trying to see things these days. And so I feel a lot mm. more comfortable now starting projects where maybe it's not considered the right age to do it or it's uh, it's it feels like a little bit late. My PhD is an example of this. I was 28 when I started my studies again for my master's degree and I was 31 when I started my PhD and I'm one of the oldest students there. Most people just did their bachelor's degrees, master's and then their PhD and they didn't necessarily right. work in industry like I did for a while and I feel okay with it. And that being said, um, I think it's important to be honest that I still have sometimes that voice in the back of my head. It's not completely gone. Mm. It does happen sometimes that I'm like, why Why should I start this? There are so many people who have been practicing this thing for 10 years or 15 years. They are way better than me. And why am I even wasting my time trying to, to learn this thing? But now I recognize right. this voice and I'm, I've just become a bit better at noticing what this voice is and knowing that I should not listen to it. And I just I should still try and experiment new things, even if it feels like it's a bit late. Wow. I'm so happy you shared that with us. So in psychology, we have a construct known as our mental models, which you have written about as well. Basically, frameworks um, of our mind, of internal representations that we have to make sense of the world around us and just information that we receive as well. And um, 
basically these models are formed through our experiences, our exposure to various stimuli, etc. And I can let you get into a few, but how relevant do you think understanding mental models are on how we create and produce? So I think something that's important to understand with mental models, they have become something quite popular to study in the in psychology and self-development. A lot of people try to choose certain mental models to add to their toolbox so they can think better, make better decisions, right. etc. Um, something that I think is not discussed enough is that whether you are proactive or not about your mental models, you will have mental models anyway. Everyone has them. And so what is useful in terms of understanding mental models is to become aware of the ones that you already have, the way you see the world, and to maybe replace some of them with mental models that you find more helpful um, or to get rid of some of them and to maybe add more to your toolbox. But it's not really like whether you have them or you don't have them. Everyone has them and they can be either constructive and helpful or they can get in the way of the way you think and, and you create. So to answer your question about just creating and thinking, I think that it's a little bit like for, for lots of things, you could either do things the hard way without getting all of the help that you could get mm. to achieve something. Or you can do do it the easy way. Like um, I'm trying to make up. I'm really bad at this. Trying to make up a comparison for this. <laughs> that in, in in real life, it usually just take me a long time to think about. But um, yeah, it's a little bit like uh, oh, that's something that happened recently. Actually, uh, where I was with a friend and we were mm -hmm. trying to make um, chili sauce from fresh chili. Yeah, and uh, we realized that we didn't have a blender. Uh, and so we ended up okay. having to make the sauce with like a mortar, having to crush it by hand, basically, which took such a long time. And old school in way. The end, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the old school way. And the sauce was really good, way too hot, but very good at the end. But it took us so much longer and it was a lot more tiring because we didn't have the best tool for the job. And it's a bit, it's the same with mental models. Um, you can kind of like try and figure out a problem, try to make progress on a project. And with mm. that mental models, you may you may perfectly end up finding the right solution and producing something that is really good. It's just that it would have been so much faster and so much easier if you had the right mental models in the first place. Let's go a little bit into that then. You have some amazing concepts that you speak about on how to intentionally create a system for yourself to build upon uh one's creative process. Can you walk us through maybe some of those processes that you use? I'll give a few, which I love, um, the diffused versus focus thinking, idea sex, and then um, I think the generation technique as well. These are all really great ones, but feel free to bring in some of your own. No, we can do these ones. I think they're also some of my favorites. So I'm glad you brought these up. Um, so for the diffused and focused mode of thinking, um, it's based on the fact that we know our brain has two ways of solving problems. Um, one of them is uh, the focused mode. That's when you're trying really hard to understand and solve a problem. 
it's kind of like the, the cliche of someone just trying to solve an equation, just staring at the piece of paper, writing different ways to approach it, etc. Um, so that's that's the focused mode of thinking. You will notice that if you only do this very often, you'll feel stuck at some point. You'll feel like you've looked at the problem mm-hmm. from every possible angle and somehow you still can't solve it. And um, I used a math equation as an example, but this could also be a creative problem, like just staring at the blank page and feeling like you really have no idea how to convey an idea um, or how to, what to write in the next paragraph, how to best convey something. So that's why it's very important that you balance focused the focused mode of thinking with the diffuse mode of thinking, where you actually let your brain do the work in the background and form connections and notice patterns in a way that is non-obvious. So if you try to do it in a conscious way, you're not going to see those patterns, whereas your brain in the background is able to make those connections that may seem a little bit odd or weird at first, but that will put you on the way to the solution. And this is why you've hardly know the term having a shower thought. For this to happen, you need to stop banging your head and trying to solve the problem. You need to let go <laughs> of it and let your, your brain do the work in the background. And that's why a lot of people have those eureka moments, those aha moments in the shower, because this is a typical moment and a space where we don't do anything else. We're not scrolling on our phones. We're not chatting with someone. We're not doing anything. We're just letting our mind wander. And this is when it happens. Um, So that's a diffuse and focused mode of thinking. I love those aha moments. It's such a great feeling. And it just amazes me how similar we all are because 80% of my aha moments happen in the shower as well. Those times when your brain is actually so-called switched off or at rest. I know there have been studies related to sleep and diffused thinking as well. Although I'm not very familiar with the literature, but it's essentially the same concept your brain's still working while you sleep, but it's not actually actively thinking. <laughs> yeah, I've seen them a long time ago. And um, same as you, I don't remember the literature very well, but um, I think they did find that it was a lot better for also for learning if you tried to solve the problem and mm. took a nap or went to bed and then tried again after that. Um, so it's, there was something interesting in there. Yeah, and what was the other one? So uh, idea sex. Is, uh, is very simple. It's just a technique that I use to generate new interesting ideas. And I, um, and you know, I, I didn't come up with it. You see it everywhere in any creative space. It's just the idea that you can take two ideas and make them have babies together. And the more different the two ideas, the more interesting the baby idea is going to be. So you can, for example, take uh, two different uh, tools from different industries and ask what would that look like if you merge those two tools together? Or you could um, ask yourself, what if I uh, approach a certain question from um, a more like philosophy standpoint rather than maybe the psychological standpoint that I've been trying to use so far. And so just like merging ideas together, making them having baby ideas. And it doesn't, it's not always going to give you really good ideas. Like sometimes they're not really going to be good. Even when they're good, they're still babies. Like you need to nurture them and do more research (laughs) and try to figure out if there's something really interesting in there. But it's something I really like doing 
um, when I'm looking for something fresh and new to write about, when I don't want to just regurgitate something that someone else has written already. And so it's a great way to create original content in the sense that there's nothing that is ever completely new and original. Everything, you know, there's the phrase, everything is a remix. So IdeaSex is a proactive way to remix ideas in a way. Recently, when I was reading one of your blogs, I came across the Feynman technique after the physicist. The reason why I bring him up is because um, I was watching a documentary on him and um, he spoke about something very similar. It was He was basically just eating lunch and some kid threw a plate in the cafeteria and the plate had like a little blue medallion on it. And then as the plate was wobbling, the little blue, um, the little medallion just kept on spinning. And then he said he just became curious what was the relation between the two. And so he started working out an equation for it. And he just like kept playing around with it until he eventually came up uh, with a form of a theory. So it's just interesting to think that it's something that has nothing to do with physics. And yet he was able to just take just something that he saw and try to apply it and combine it. And he came up with a, a theory. Oh, that's, that's such an amazing story about him. He, he's such a, such a fascinating character. Um, another thing he used to, to do, he used to do was to, um, uh, always carry in his pocket a list of problems that were on his mind. And so he, by having this like kind of like list of problems, basically it helped him right. listen to every conversation he was having with people for any signal or anything that could relate to some of these problems that were on his mind. And so maybe that also helped him create more connections in this way, because instead of passively listening to people talking to him or maybe passively observing that, that plate that was that was flying mm. with the medallion. If you constantly have a set of questions you're curious about in the back of your mind, you probably yeah. start seeing the world a little bit differently as well. Wow. When we are creating or writing or researching about whatever it is, we generally start off with some sort of input, whether it would be reading a paper or just watching something. But generally, we need to be able to first grasp those ideas or concepts. One challenge that I almost always come across, unfortunately, it's forgetfulness. And it's so frustrating because I could study something, I could read a whole chapter of something and wake up the next morning and forget it. And um, I know that real learning tends to happen when there's an application. Um, it may be that I'm not remembering anything because I'm not actually learning the concepts. I'm simply reading the concepts. But during your learning and creative process, do you have any sort of techniques which allow you to remember the material or actually learn the material you are reading, whether you're doing it for work, studying, or even for leisure? Only way I have found that works for me is that I actually don't really have a good memory. Um, I also don't remember things very well if I don't use them, which I think is a very common thing. So I take notes. I take quite a few notes when I read stuff or listen to stuff, but I only take notes when there is some sort of creative output that I have in mind for those notes, some sort of project mm. that I can connect those notes to. So for example, um, I years ago, I took a, a class to use a, a software called SPSS that helps you do statistical analysis. I, yeah, I took that class. I uh, did my exam, got a good grade and proceeded to forget everything about it. And during my PhD, I had a project where I had to use it. And 
now I actually feel like I can use this software and I feel very comfortable with it. But because I was, when I was reading tutorials, et cetera, and taking notes, it's because I had a specific project in mind and I could immediately put it in practice. So it's the same mm-hmm. for me if I'm reading research papers, etc. And I'm I'm very fortunate that I have enough creative projects going on in my life where there's always a bucket where this could go into. So I may be reading something that could be helpful for the book. So I'm putting notes linked to the book uh, on a research paper that I'm reading, etc. Or if it's more linked to something I'm working on for my PhD, I will take notes that are linked to this. If I ask myself, what could this note be helpful for? And I cannot answer that question. If the answer is no or unclear, then I don't add it to my note-taking system because I don't want to clutter it with just things that make me feel good about adding it to my system because I'm like, oh, I did something with Mm. the information. Like, No, actually copying and pasting uh, a bit of text into your note-taking system is not going to do anything useful and it's not going to help you remember it any better. Um, So that's what I do. I just take notes on things that I'm working on or thinking of working on. And because I know that these notes are going to be helpful for a a particular project, I also tend to write a few lines in my own words as to why this would be helpful Mm -hmm. and what it connects to um, in regards to previous notes that I have in my system. So I just make this information my own. And it doesn't mean that I will necessarily remember the information very well in my my mind and my brain, but it means that I will know what to look up in my note-taking system when I get to the point where I need that information and it will end up being helpful. And that's all you want. You want for that information to be helpful, whether it is staying in, as uh, Tiago Forte would say, in your first brain or your second brain, it doesn't really matter as long (laughs) as you can put it to use afterwards. Mm. You call it note-taking versus note-making. Yeah. So for me, note-taking is like when I'm in a lecture and I'm just taking very quick notes and just trying to capture that information. Um, And that's something you don't need to do as much nowadays because most of the time the recordings are uploaded, the transcripts are recorded. So that kind of dumb note-taking is is really, there's no (laughs) use, I think, for for it anymore. Note-making is writing things in your own words, making the information your own. And that's the kind of um, notes that are going to be useful and generative in the future. One aspect of your work that I really love is the concept of lifelong learning and combinational creativity. I think consciously just being aware of this, the idea to not limit ourselves and be bold enough to explore concepts constructs, you know, cross-reference them in such great ways and kind of readapt our cognitive processes and the way our brains generally or currently wire itself, but kind of helping us become more dynamic and maybe create a different style that we hadn't before. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about this um, ideology or this combinational creativity? Um, it's actually related to the idea of... Idea sex? Yeah. Yes. Again, it, it is the the... It's really the idea that um, there's nothing new. Everything is combinatorial in nature. Any idea that you see and where you feel like, oh, wow, that is so original, is just the result of someone who managed to connect two things that were not obvious in the first place. And that's 
really where the magic happens. And so instead of waiting for that to happen, to be passive and to, it can happen. It could happen at some point for you to be like, Oh my God, I just, I just see it. Right. You can be proactive. You can mm -hmm. make it a practice to do combinational creativity, to take ideas in your note taking system, to link them together, to, to really look for patterns. Um, I compare it to gardening a little bit because you can plant the seeds of ideas. Those are the little notes that you create. And then like trees that grow branches, you can connect these ideas together, uh, you know, create those nodes mm -hmm. and link them. And if you keep on doing this at some point, you will be able to kind of like collect the produce of this, the fruit of the, all of this work that you've been doing, because you will start noticing that some ideas form clusters together and you're like, oh, there's something really interesting here. There's an idea space that I can start exploring and that I would have not noticed if I didn't do this proactive work of mind gardening, of connecting those ideas together. So this is really what combinational mm. creativity is to me. It's really a practice of emergent thought instead of trying to come up with things from from scratch, which which doesn't really work. This idea of this muse whispering in your ear and just telling you what to create <laughs> next. Instead of that is really a practice of letting those ideas emerge and doing it in a proactive way by really gardening with your thoughts. I love the concepts of themes as well. I've recently been working with a mentor and um, one of the activities that we did is she took out a piece of paper and just, I wrote in like a little speech bubble, what excites you? And it was, you could literally write down anything. And so I started just you know, branching out and like a spider web, just writing all the, all the different things that excite me and then identifying different themes. And so, um, once you kind of identified them, then you use like a colorful pencil just to make it fun for yourself and, um, just write down and identify those different themes. And it's crazy because then you see this visualization of different compartments of things that you are passionate about and things that excite you. And then, Once you have that kind of visualized, you can streamline it into actually something more actionable. So I absolutely love the mind gardening concept. I think it's so great. Yeah, it's it's interesting because in the end, I'm going to be writing a book about uh, other topics. But um, that was the original mm. book that I was planning on writing just about mind gardening. Now it's going to end up being a chapter in the book I'm writing instead of an, a complete book. So yeah, there's going to be a bit more information about how it works that's going to be published at some point. I'm so excited for it. And it's so cute how the mind gardening kind of planted your little seed for the book. <laughs> it's now a little yeah. chapter that's growing into a whole book. It's, it's very meta. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> so once you have kind of your creative process recognized, um, of course, the next step is to actually produce and bring your ideas thoughts and into into life or into paper. I know you talk a lot about mindfulness productivity. What actually is that? And can mindfulness, just the, the concept of mindfulness, I mean, be integrated into creative processes? Yeah. So if you go back to what mindfulness is, which is really about being fully present in the moment and bring bring back your attention to the here and now. This is actually such a helpful frame of mind to have when you're trying to do creative work. 
So instead of trying to do a thousand things at the same time, you just do that one thing and you really focus on it. Um, instead of blaming yourself for when you're procrastinating, you actually, without any judgment, ask yourself, why is it that I'm procrastinating? Or maybe the thoughts or emotions that are getting in the way of mm. me doing the work that I know I want to do. Instead of trying to control everything the way some more, uh, you know, I, I tend to call it toxic productivity or productivity porn because it's like right. this very irrealistic <laughs> approach to productivity. So instead of, of trying to control everything, it's about embracing the fact that work and life in general are chaotic, that not everything is going to happen the way you planned it. And so to organize your work in a way that allows for that chaos and for that unpredictable productivity. And again, to manage to not let that cause too much stress or anxiety, because you just know that it's part of the process. So removing this self-blame, this judgment out of the equation and really focusing in the present moment, focusing on what you can do now instead of worrying about the, the output and the future and how it's going to be received by people. All of this makes sense. Like, it's just like, it's, it's really just really totally. being mindful about the way you do your work. And so that's what mindful productivity is really. It's a, it's a different approach to work that encourages being more connected with yourself, being kinder to yourself. And it is also an approach that based on everything we know about stress and anxiety and it impacts it has on the performance we have at work or in our creativity or productivity. Um, I think mindful productivity is actually a way to do better work. And so not only right. to feel better while you do the work, but to actually produce better work. Yeah. You touched upon procrastination here. Um, so I'd just like to get into that. I think we can obviously procrastinate for a number of reasons. For example, if we don't enjoy doing something, you know, unpacking a suitcase after a vacation or studying a subject we don't thoroughly enjoy, you know, a lot of us procrastinate because it's boring for us. But what if we're procrastinating something that we actually love to do? And I know you've spoken about procrastination being an emotional reaction rather than one where one is lazy or tired. I mean, it could be that too, but if it becomes a pattern where a project or something is constantly delayed, then probably there's something more. I was actually talking to a friend and she was saying how she's has so many unfinished projects. She's super, super creative, but there's something there. There's no motivation, whatever that is. There's just some form of procrastination in her work. And she has multiple projects that are just lying there. So what do you think is going on there? So um, a framework that I find quite useful to try and understand what's going on when you procrastinate is to ask yourself whether it's coming from the head, the heart, or the hand. Um, so if it's coming from the mm. head, it, those are the rational factors. It means that you're not convinced that this task is actually important or aligned with the general objectives that you have at work. Um, so in that case, you really need to reconsider your strategy. Maybe that that task actually is not something that should be done or not with the specific approach. Maybe it should be redesigned in a way that is more aligned with, uh, again, your, your overall objectives. So if you feel like this task is not important and not aligned in this way, so rationally speaking, so there's something to fix here before you can start working on the task. If it's coming from the heart, so this is the whole affect uh, the, the feelings, uh, very often the subconscious ones that we're not necessarily aware of. 
if that's the case, you do need to do some work to bring those feelings up to the surface so you can examine them and, and know what to do with them. So personally, I love journaling for this. I know that some people have other mindfulness mm. practices that work for them, but really trying to understand what is the feeling here that's getting in the way. And sometimes it could be fear. For example, if you're a perfectionist and you're scared that the the version you're going to create is not going to be as good as the version that you have in your mind. And so you'd rather not get started because you're scared of that. Or maybe it is something where in the past, historically, um, you've received negative feedback on this, this type of work. And so again, you're a bit scared of being judged once you produce that work and you share, share it with the world. Sometimes it can also just be that it really doesn't look like fun. It looks tedious, boring. Yeah. That's also an underlying you know, feeling that you have and you're just like, oh, I, I don't feel any joy when I think about this, right? So I think it's very important to examine what are the underlying feelings. And if it's the kind of, uh, of task where you have a little bit of freedom as to how you can do it, you can then try and address those feelings. What are those fears? Are they actually true? If it's just boring, maybe try to make it more fun. But if it's something that you're scared of, uh, maybe a little bit more writing, talking about it with a friend. If if you have a therapist, that is something that maybe you could address. If it's a really big task that you've been pushing, you know, you've been yeah. putting away off for a very long time. Or in the case of your friend, if it's something that's very recurrent, that's like that happens with a lot of different tasks. Maybe again, that's something where a bit some deeper work may be helpful to address that emotional level. And then the last one is the hand. So um, sometimes rationally speaking, the head is, yes, yes, we should absolutely do this. This is important. Your heart is, yes, oh, that looks like fun. This looks great. Like, <laughs> I want to do this. And still you procrastinate. And so in those cases, very often the problem is with the hand. It means that you're uh, lacking or you feel like you're lacking the skills or that the tools or you, you lack the knowledge to be able to do the thing. Everything, your, 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 your mind and, and your heart, everything is aligned. Everything wants to do it, but you feel like you cannot do it. In those cases, instead of procrastinating, uh, you can maybe, um, get training, coaching, mentoring, talk to a colleague really? or a friend who has more expertise and who can help you. The only caveat I would put with this one is to be careful about not using this as an excuse for more procrastination. So uh, don't start buying all of the books about the topic or listening to all of the podcasts about the topic. Just really, <laughs> it, it can happen. I've done that. We've all done that. So um, try to really identify what is the 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 missing tool or skill or, or piece of knowledge that I need to be able to do this and acquire that and then go back to the task. Did you ever have a mentor or coach during your whole journey? Some people need that kind of push or just have that environment where they're being held accountable or supported. So I'm just curious to know. I've had, I haven't, I've never had a formal one, though I'm actually thinking of working with one now and something that just happened in mm. the past few weeks because um, I just feel like I'm juggling quite a few things and having this sounding board could be really helpful for me. Um, but in the past, so I've never had a formal one, but I've had more of an informal council of mentors that I don't, I don't think they know that I see them as mentors. We never had that conversation. These are people that I really admire. I I really yeah. respect the way they work, the way they think. Um, and 
And I, I just feel like I can just either email them or text them if I feel a bit lost about something. And I feel like they'll always give me really good advice. A lot of them are friends. Even if you don't use that, that help, knowing that it's there is also very calming. Yeah. For me to try something new that is a bit difficult and out of my comfort zone and feeling like, okay, I am going to try this and I'm going to give it my best. But also if somehow I really can't figure it out, I know that there is someone in that council that can help me figure it out. And so it's uh, it's very helpful for me. That's awesome. So, and Laura, as a final question, I guess, what are some valuable lessons you have learned as an entrepreneur in this space and building your community of Nest Labs and whether you have any final tip for someone who's starting their creative process? I think the only mistake that you can make is to not experiment enough. So my only advice for people who are getting started is to just try a lot of different things. Just try it. See not only if it's successful for your business or your creative goals, but also how it feels because there's no point being successful if you feel miserable. So experiment, make sure that you have space for self-reflection so you can actually observe both the external metrics of success, but also the kind of internal signals of well-being, your mental health, how fulfilling this journey feels like. And if you do this, I guarantee you'll end up finding your thing just because you'll have tried lots of different combinations and one of them is going to be the right one. So just don't try and stick to a linear path too early in the journey. Keep on experimenting and keep on learning and keep on listening to yourself. Wow. And Laura, this has been nothing short of amazing. Thank you so, so much for your time and for coming on the podcast. I can't wait to apply some of the things we discussed to my creative journey. And I'm sure a lot of the listeners will too. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. Thank you everyone for tuning in and listening. If you did like this episode, I highly recommend you check out Anne Laura's work. You can follow her on Instagram, Twitter, which I'll be sharing in this episode description, along with the Nest Labs website and the sign up link for their newsletter. Thank you again, and we'll catch you in the next episode.